All right, let's, let's talk about repentance as it applies to the will of the heart. Let's, let's begin with prayer again, shall we? Our gracious God and Father, we are about to read many scripture passages and to hear your voice, to hear what you have to tell us in your words. And we pray, Father, that we would uh, truly receive them well. We ask that you would humble us uh, to um, be receptive to your truth, that we would not resist uh, the working of your spirit, that we would not grieve him, that we would not quench the spirit, but rather to understand that the things that you teach us and remind us of in your word, those things that you imprint upon our hearts are the very things that will bring forth life. And we thank you, Father, again for the saving grace of repentance and this wonderful gift that you've given to us that we can come clean with the true and the living God who sees our hearts and to know that it is through Christ that those same hearts are washed clean and delivered from the condemning power of sin and the reigning power of sin. And so, Father, lead us truly uh, this hour yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so building upon what we were just uh, reflecting upon, namely the twofold nature of, of the will, <clears throat> we want to think of repentance in the same way, that if repentance, of, repentance is of the heart and of the whole heart, then it has to be an expression of the will, which means, ergo, therefore it must be an expression of this twofold uh, functioning of the will of the heart. And I've tried to capture that with two words um, that may not be the best words. The second one, I think, is the best word, but the first one is bending, and that would reflect the yielding of our will, our submitting and surrendering ourselves to God um, in the will of our heart. And the second word is, is the most popular word in the Bible to describe um, or to um, attach itself to uh, what we're talking about, and that's turning. That's the, the, the most common word we have in scripture for repentance. But both elements, I think, are necessary that because of this twofold function of the heart, uh, where we need to submit on the one hand and where we need to commit ourselves on the other. And of course, uh, to kind of get ahead of, getting ahead of ourselves, that's what I'm suggesting about faith as well. That faith as an expression of the will uh, needs to be seen in this twofold way. And that will lead us uh, to what the reformers felt was truly uh, the very cream a saving faith, namely trust, which we'll get to this evening, the, the culmination of, of our studies. But I like the word bending. Uh, bending is, is kind of a, of a graphic way of describing something we do, but something that's uh, done to us by God, where he's, he's bending our will to his own. And in terms of sanctification, I think this is a very helpful picture and you can find another word if you wish, but I think it's, it's a good way to get at this aspect of what it means to, to truly repent. And one of the ways in which scripture describes this is in its use of the word a broken heart. Now, in, in popular culture in our day, when we say broken heart, we're referring to a sadness of heart. We're talking about somebody who's mourning, who's received terrible news, uh, somebody who is, is sad. And... And the Bible uses it that way. It uses it to refer to a sad heart, like in Psalm 34, 18, where it says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and that he saves the crushed in spirit. There it's talking about somebody who's been overcome and overwhelmed. 
And, and God is near to this person whose heart is broken in this fashion. But brokenhearted can also refer to one's will. Uh, J. Gresham Machen said Christianity is the religion of the broken heart. And uh, that's in his, his book, which continues to be so relevant, Christianity and Liberalism. And, and I would highly recommend it to you. You'll think that he was speaking of the 21st century situation. But broken can also mean a subdued will, like in Psalm 51, 17. And here, I think in context, that's what it means, that the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Now, some of that could involve the desires of the heart and his sadness, for sure. But in the context, he, he is very concerned about the fact that his, his heart failed him. And what I mean is this. It's, it's not as if uh, David was unaware of the, the boundaries of marriage that he committed adultery uh, with Bathsheba. And in fact, when you turn to Psalm 51, you realize there's two things that are upon his mind. And I'm going to just look at a few verses there. And one of those things is his sin. He's, he's concerned about his sin. And he understands that this is a problem. That there's now a wall between him and God. And he's greatly concerned that something is done about this sin. And he, he wants that sin addressed. But there's a second problem for David. And it's the sinner. It's him. And this is actually how the psalm begins. And he feels uh, the, the filth of his sin. And it's interesting when you see all the different synonyms you have for cleansing and for washing away. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin. Cleanse me of my sin. And then he goes on to, to use other words as well, being cleansed with, with hyssop. Wash me, purge me, in verse 7, so that I'll be whiter than snow, so that I shall be clean. So you have... All these ways in which he's describing his impurity, and he feels that, that sin and how it's polluted him. But when he turns in the prayer after dealing with his sin and asking God for his forgiveness, it's interesting what he asks God for. Because in verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Then in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Where he went wrong was in his lack of resolve, was in the weakness of his will. He knew exactly what was right. He was battling his desires. But in the end, what did he give in to? He gave in to a weak will. And so now his petition with God is, I need to get this right next time. I need you by your spirit to sustain and to strengthen my will. He's not asking God, inform me more clearly about what adultery means. He doesn't ask God for that. He knows that clear well. He knows what bad desires are. But it's interesting to me that he's going to God and he's saying through so the, the word that he uses here, I need a steadfast spirit. I need a fixed, firm, established, strengthened will so that I'll resist temptation next time. And so I think that's why it's also helpful to see the broken heart sometimes in scripture uh, is a reference not to sadness, but to a will that's being broken, it's being willed. Think of how you break a horse. And I have no idea how you break a horse. But um, it just, it sounds good and right. But you have to do that without breaking the spirit of the horse. But you have to break him in so that it's submissive. And God does the same thing for us. And so a broken heart is one where the walls of disobedience are crumbling. 
under that, that gracious influence of God, this great God who inhabits eternity and dwells in transcendent holiness, tells us in Isaiah 57, he also shows his greatness by condescending to uh, that uh, contrite heart, to a broken heart. And in fact, in Psalm 51, he's saying that a broken heart, he will never despise. He's saying, no, this is something I can deal with because this is somebody who is submitting themselves to me and saying, I want you to shape me and direct me and lead me uh, where I should go and what I should do. To use another picture taken from Jeremiah 18.4 that Paul picks up in Romans 9 is a heart that is pliable clay being shaped by the hands of the potter. This is what we're talking about. It's, it's a will that is broken or is soft and, and, is, and is willing to, to submit itself to God. This is part of our repentance where we're coming to God and admitting to the fact that we have been rebellious, that we have resisted him, that we have been too passive aggressive perhaps, and we're willing to bend. Somebody has said repentance is a cordial submission. Cordial it, with the word is coming from the, the root of the word is core, you know, for, for the heart. It's a heartfelt submission where those encrusted layers are falling away and that what was once a hardened core is, has been softened under the tender work of Christ's spirit. And so now this is something that is, is pliable. And so broken heart is a helpful, um, it's helpful language to help us to appreciate this. I think another side to this, and this is something that Calvin emphasizes with regard to repentance, with regard to the will of the heart, is self-denial. Again, I quoted this earlier, self-denial is the sum of the Christian life uh, for Calvin. And it's our Savior who says in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Self-denial is the will bending to God or as uh, we were uh, reminded earlier, where we're basically saying to God, not my will, but your will be done, be done. I'm, I'm willing to deny myself. And in my opinion, this is one of the, the greatest problems of the Christian life is to renounce those sinful excesses of self. I remember um, kind of opening my heart to a, a man I worked side by side with, Mark Salade, and, and I said, sometimes when I walk into the pulpit, I just feel this, this cloud around me. And it's like Pigpen in the Peanuts cartoons, right? He always had this cloud around him of dirt. And he, and he said, yeah, he said, sin. I said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about self. That there's sometimes self gets in the way. It's in the way all the time. It's what I'm struggling with. There was one young lady who came and visited me. who was a member of our church. And she said, I, I want to leave our church. And she began, began to tell me all these reasons why. And I said, why don't you tell me the real reason, which I already know. And she was like, well. She says, well, what's that? And I said, you don't like me. You don't like my personality. She said, how did you know that? I said, well, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> I said, I actually don't blame you. I'm kind of sympathetic. <laughs> and, um, but it's, of course, it's something a, a pastor mourns. It means I've gotten in the way. Right? Something about me has gotten in the way of, of Christ, that something is inhibiting this person to, to hear and to see only Christ. And this is something all of us struggle with, not just ministers. But when we're doing this, when we're denying ourselves, what we're renouncing are all these forms in which self wants to express itself. 
And let me just give you a list. Self-importance, self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-absorption, self-advocacy, self-centeredness, self-conceit, self-interest, self-pitying, and other forms of self-seeking and being self-serving. Self, 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 self. We cannot go a day without thinking about ourselves. We can't go a day without wondering what other people are thinking about us. We're so consumed by this. But by doing this, by coming and expressing ourselves in repentance and saying, I wish to deny myself in the many ways in which I think too much of myself, whether it's too highly in my pride or too often in my selfishness, there's all these ways in which self continues to try to rise to the top and tries to go before me and lead me in everything. What we're also saying is at the same hand that what I want to pursue is unselfishness and self-abasement and self-abnegation and self-abandonment and self-sacrifice. All these categories that the Bible gives to us and how we are to do this. And this should take up a lot of our repentance because we're admitting there's this side to ourselves that needs to be suppressed, it needs to be subdued, it needs to be mortified. And that's the, the language that, that, that Paul uses in Romans 8.13 to put to death our sin. I think it's okay to think of this in graphic terms. Every day my duty is to do what? It is to strangle sin, to snuff it out, destroy it, put it away, put it off. That's the language of the New Testament. That there's so much of myself that needs to, to die. Now, I'm not talking about personality, okay? I'm not talking about that. I had an associate pastor one time that was one of the funniest men I've ever known. I said, when you get into the pulpit, it's like you become this whitewashed person. I don't even know who you are. I don't recognize you. I said, that's not the way we talk to most interns and uh, associate pastors. We tell them to turn down the volume. There's too much of yourself coming across, but not you. You need to turn up the squelch knob of your personality and turn down the volume on, on self. He had no idea what I was talking about, but, he, uh, but I think it's where we were, and, and he went to another church, and he has just flourished and shined. And, and I'm not kidding. It's one of the funniest guys I know. We're not talking about your personality. You're not supposed to turn that off. You are who you are. And that's a great day for a preacher when he, he learns simply just to be himself and to minister within his own skin in the gifts God has given to him and not try to imitate somebody else. We should not be worried about that in our personalities. I'm talking about self and those selfish impulses that we have to impose ourselves or to be first or to, to be excessive or to indulge or to be selfish. And so that's one half of this in terms of a repentance, a bending. But the other part is turning. And so if the former part is, is our yielding in, in our will and our submitting to God, this is the part where there is resolve and strength. Where repentance is doing two things. It means turning from and turning to. And so this idea of turning is throughout Scripture. So let me read some Scripture passages to show this to you. Acts 3.19 Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. So you can see that the word repent there and turn back are used in a parallel way. They mean the same thing. Acts 26, 20. And, but he declared to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God in keeping with the repentance they should perform good deeds. 
Now, repent, we saw this the other day, means literally a change of mind, or we call it a change of heart. It's, it's a new sort of moral consciousness. It's a new direction of thought. But the idea is more than that. It's not just a change of mind. It's meant to be a change of life, a change of course, a new direction, not just of, of thought, not just of desire, but of, of will, and that it expresses itself both inwardly and outwardly. And it has to be inward. If it's simply outward, and if this is what we, we do with our children, we simply correct their behavior, and that's all we're concerned about, or if we want uh, young disciples in our church only to be well-behaved, what are we actually training? Are we training disciples, or are we training, begins with the letter P, Pharisees. Outside looks good. Inside, not so good. So repentance in terms of turning involves both these things, right? It's both inward and outward. Because it's the forsaking of sin. And forsaking of sin means to be forsaking a love of sin. And forsaking a constant um, uh, occupation of sin, preoccupation with sin, but also and with regard to my will. So turning outwardly, you see this. I'll just read you two passages. Jeremiah 25, 5. It says, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds. So it's not just turning inwardly, but you need to forsake those former ways. The things that you used to do, you need to forsake those things and not do them. Isaiah 55, 7 is another example. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so it has to be something that eventually involves our behavior, that there really is a change in the direction of our life. Now we can talk later about how fast that happens, how, how immediate it needs to take place, how much progress should we be able to chart in terms of that turn. That's another issue altogether. But there needs to be eventually some change in the course of our life. And this turning both inward and outward is seen in this language of forsaking. It's one of God's favorite words uh, in the Old Testament to describe this. Now, I need to be uh, candid with you and to um, tell you that forsaking is often used to also describe God's people forsaking their God. So in other words, this is a word that can be both negative and positive. Because it means to leave. Uh, it means to, to cast off in a different direction. And it, it's God uses it very often to describe how God's people have forsaken the truth. They have fors forsaken the right path. They have forsaken uh, their God. And I can give you those references later. But it's also the word he uses for forsaking sin. In Job eleven fourteen, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And let not injustice dwell in your tents. It's the same concept. I just read Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Ezekiel 18 talks about cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Or a passage that Pastor Cotta read yesterday in a prayer time, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There is a, a forsaking of their idols. And so this, this is seen as well, this, this turning, both inward and outward, 
Um, in the fruit of repentance. Now, this is an important concept as well as we talk about turning. And this comes up in the baptism of John. People come to John because it's a baptism that has to do with what? It begins letter R. Repentance. There you go. Very good. The most obvious answer ever. Right? It's a baptism of repentance. And so it is meant to be the sort of thing where, where you come and what you're admitting to God is your sin and that you greatly desire a change in your life. Who are the, the group of people who did not come and submit to the baptism of repentance? All the religious leaders. Because they didn't need to repent. Right? That's sarcasm. I was talking to somebody about sarcasm. That is sarcasm. But here's what he says. He gets these questions from these people who come to this baptism, and they ask these great questions. And the questions they ask are not just simply, we need practical application of this baptism of repentance. What they're expressing is they're truly repenting. And how should we conduct ourselves now? We want to change. So what do we do? And so he says in Luke 3.8, John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your your wages. And so you see what's happening here is that they want to make real change in their life, not just talk about it and not just have this inward uh, feeling of, of change or this commitment within, but they're saying we want to make real changes in our life. This is fruit in keeping with repentance. This is change. In Acts 26, 20, uh, again, we read this a second ago, that they declared to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So you have the same idea there. And we also saw this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And let me, again, we've read this a couple times, but it won't hurt us to hear it again. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 12. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So though I wrote to you in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So what he's saying here is that you not only repented, but what we see is the fruit of repentance. We see all these things that are associated with genuine repentance, this earnestness, this eagerness, this indignation and fear and longing, this zeal. And so all these things that are showing us that they put this repentance into, into action, that they were greatly concerned that this would be expressed outwardly. They were turning from their sin. Now this, this is exactly what we would expect to see if what we said the other day is true, that repentance is a hatred of one's sin. We turn from the things that we hate. And this is an expression of that repentance is, is grief over sin. We turn away from those things that, that grieve us that we did them. And so we turn away from, 
from what we hate. In fact, this is the proof that we're turning away from it. And here I just want to remind us that this is something that perhaps most often has to be taught to us within. And where we need to be patient with regard to our repentance, especially with what I said, that repentance needs to be seen outwardly. And this is where we become impatient with ourselves. And worse yet, we become impatient with others. You said you repented, and yet you did the very same thing again. Here we are, a week later, and you've done exactly the same thing. When in fact, part of what God needs to do to us so that we're fully and deeply committed to this change is he has to build in us this true repugnance of that sin, a real hatred of the sin. Because that begins many times that this was an annoyance. I got caught, right? We talked about that, the danger of sin. But we've not really, really begun to appreciate the offense that this is against God. It's not until we really see the harm we did to somebody else that we begin to appreciate the depth of how awful our sin was in that moment. And it's through many of these lessons that God is deepening and deepening and deepening our understanding of how we must be repulsed by this sin. I hate this sin. And it could be that over a span, even of a year, that you find yourself doing the same thing you did a year ago, but you're not in the same place because your hatred for this sin is 10 times greater than it was the year before. And somewhere out there in the future, there's going to come a turn. And it's going to seem like it's going to come immediately. But it came with every one of these lessons up to that point. It's like the example of this, that you're splitting a piece of wood. Now, we use splitting mold nowadays, but a lot of people used to use wedges these steel wedges, and you could hit them with another uh, tool like a sledgehammer. And you would set that, that wedge, and then you would, you would hit it, and you would hit it, and you would hit it. And the gap, the split, would, would widen and widen, and then there came that last stroke when you hit it and it split. It was every single stroke that led up to that last stroke that, that aided and it brought to that point where you could actually split that wood. But we tend to think, oh, it was that last hit that did it. No, that's not true. It was every single time you hit that wedge that it contributed to the ultimate success of that wood splitting in two. And that's the way that God teaches us. And so not all the things that are, are significant in us are these outward things. That, that outward is usually a manifestation of that inward work, but that inward work is invisible. And it's hard to perceive. And this is why, again, just simply to underline, repentance unto life means that this is a lifelong task. It is this idea of dying to sin every single day that this is your and my responsibility. This is the formal spiritual warfare that is staring us in the face. It's not Satan in the abstract. He is our adversary, of course. But the most immediate enemy you're dealing with is your own flesh and your own sin. I had the privilege of knowing uh, two men who were veterans of World War II. Uh, one was a Christian brother, one was a not. Uh, both of them fought on, on the front. But one of them fought in Italy, the other one fought in Germany. If you were to ask them both, who is your enemy that you fought? Who was the enemy you fought? They would both say Hitler. But what was the immediate army they were facing? It was not the same individuals. These were emissaries. These were people lower down. That's exactly the same with us, that yes, our, our enemy is the devil. Scripture is very clear about that, and we need to be clear about that in our mind. But that immediate daily task is, is dying to sin and turning from it. 
But the idea of repentance is not just turning from, it's, it's turning to. And some of the passages I read earlier uh, describe this. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, he'll have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. You can see it there. It's turning from forsaking his evil and his evil thoughts and turning to God. And that's when he will find pardon. Think of Paul in Acts 26, verse 16. He says, I have appeared to you for this purpose. I'm sorry, this is God speaking to Paul. He says, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Repenting is both turning from sin but turning to God. Again, First Thessalonians one nine For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now there's something else we could point out here with regard to repentance, and it takes us back to um, the catechism. Let me just read from the Shorter Catechism 87. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, both these things, doth with grief and hatred of a sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And so you see what, what comes together here is that turning from and that, and that turning to is is what we saw earlier. It's having a true sense of our sin. It's seeing sin for what it is, but also having a mercy or an apprehension of the mercy of God. It's seeing Christ for who he is. It's both these things. That's what repentance involves. And this is the difference between a true repentance and worldly grief. It's repentance that uh, sees hope because it's not just turning from, it's turning to. That as I confess my sins, I always have an eye towards Christ, knowing that as I see his mercy, that there is mercy and there's sufficient mercy for those who confess their sins. It's both these things. And it's, it's a terrible idea to think that just repentance is just to repent of my sins. And that's it. Without having a view towards thinking of Christ. Because you see, it's both these things. It's the will's two sides. That there's that, that strength and resistance and there's that surrendering. There's that surrendering to God that that says, I'm, uh, yes, God, I'm going to do what you wish, but there's that turning from sin where I'm, I'm saying no. It's both the yes and the no, but it comes out in, in both these things and what repentance is. It's turning from, it's turning to. It's having a true sight of my sin, understanding it's offense towards God, but it's having a true sight of the love of God and knowing that my relationship is with him. It's personal, as we've been saying. But it's also personal for God. We're not the only ones who turn, if we could put it that way. Let me read you a passage of scripture and tell me if you, if you pick up on a word being repeated. 
And it's in chapter 3 of Jonah when Jonah now comes for a second time to deliver a message to the people of Nineveh. And that message reaches the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink or water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And here we go. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is exactly what God promised that he would do. That any nation in which he spoke judgment against, if they turn from the evil way, he would turn from what he said he would do to them. Our God does not change. God did not change. It's the people of Nineveh that changed. God was the one who was true to his word. He did exactly what he said he would do if people repented. And that's why we believe the gospel. That in the gospel, God turns from that wrath that we surely deserve. Why? Because we love his son. And we confess him. We trust in him. And we turn from our sin. And we turn to Christ where there is sufficient mercy for sinners like you and like me. All right, I think we have exactly four minutes. Is this, is this correct? Close enough. All right. Quick questions. Easy questions, please. Oh, no. No, 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 that's Stephanie. Please. <laughs> Stephanie has a question. I'm just, we're good, right? We are good. I may be mishearing you, but I... I'm understanding that the Lord, in some of the ways you're expressing our sinning and returning occasionally to sin that we are attempting to turn away from, um, that the Lord can allow that and use that over time. I think you said, you know, we can right. end up growing in hatred of it. But there's some verses that are coming back to me as I'm listening to you from the scriptures that talk about provoking God's wrath. Mm -hmm. And some of Paul's very strong responses to Christians returning to sin that speak more towards stop than it's okay. God may be just teaching you to hate your sin over time and just allowing you to fall back in it over and over and over, and it may take time. No worries. Let's just be merciful and understanding. And I'm just wondering, when is the time to address it as this needs to stop? And putting a bit of the warnings against sin that we see over and over in the New Testament of... God is not to be mocked 
Right. Yeah, I, I don't know anybody who would say it's okay, and I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. Sin is never okay. Sin is always sin. Um, and um, I don't know some of the passages you're thinking of in Paul. I'm thinking of Hebrews has pretty stiff warnings. Um, and it's, it's referencing in Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 13, um, the, the wilderness generation and their unbelief. And so Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 have these very, very strong warnings. Those warnings are vital for some Christians to remain f- faithful. And some people say, well, why do the elect need to, to have those things? That's not the right angle at all is that there are many people who have the elect because they heard those warnings and took them to heart. And so those, those sort of uh, stiff warnings are towards those who are unrepentant. And I think that um, the person who is seeking God's forgiveness is somebody who can cast themselves with confidence, knowing that, that his grace is sufficient. All of us are repeat offenders when it comes to sin. All of us. And we could, we could get pretty rigorous towards one another about, you know, I just don't see the fruit of repentance in your life because you're doing the same thing. That is, that's an imposition we could all put to ourselves. I think that it's a difficult line in terms of when I can say to another person that it's pretty evident that your repentance is not genuine or sincere. I think all of us, a truly repentant person is terrified by such a prospect. And uh, it's repeat offenders as a pastor, I can tell you those are the people that talk in those terms the most, not, not excusing their sin. They're, they're coming with questions about, I may not be a real Christian. That's, that's the way a Christian is often talking. Now, we want people to be assured of their salvation, but we want them greatly, greatly sensitive to their sin. But the people who are really struggling with sin that I talk to as a pastor are those that talk that way. They are highly sensitive to the fact that they are really struggling and so I don't think there's any a binary choice. I don't think there's a, um, a division between the Lord who, who um, holds out his mercy and his love for sinners and the fact that he warns us just to be careful that your heart doesn't become hardened. I'm, I'm really intrigued that in the same passage uh, where our, our Lord, Lord's ministry is described as one who will lead forth justice into victory is the same passage where he says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not snuff out. And that bruised reed is a reference to uh, those of us who are profoundly uh, impacted and wounded by sin. And the whole idea there is of a cat, of like a cat skill that my brother and I used to have sword fights over in creeks in Nebraska. And you pick up one of these and you have a sword fight. And every now and then you'd find out that your sword went just like that. You look at it, there was a bruise. It was soft. But you discover that only you've been hit over the head three times already because you lost the battle. But he's saying that even something like that, that is so vulnerable already, I'm not going to break it. I'm not going to splinter it. And that's us, that he has such compassion. And it's, it's the weak and the wounded who are in touch with this, who, who feel uh, the great uh, wonder of that passage. And the smoking, flicks, smoking flax, where there seems to be hardly any flame at all. Smoke means the flame is gone. Right? That's what you and I would say. And that's where we're most likely to give up on a sinner and give up somebody else. I just don't see enough fruit in your life. All I see is smoke coming from that wick. But God gets down on his hands and knees and he gently blows upon that wick and it comes aflame again. 
That's, that's our Savior. And I think that's a disposition we want to have towards people. Because uh, most of us are failures when it comes to this. As we see ourselves, and sometimes we see other people that way, and sometimes not graciously. And I think we've got to be really careful with that. Those warnings are there for God to his people, but I think we need to be careful in saying them to other people. And I think we want to encourage people to cast ourselves upon Christ and go to him. I think, this is a, I think it's a fair question, Stephanie. I'm not rebuking the question. But I, I think in our hands we have to be really careful. It's our Savior who is the vine dresser. He is the one who prunes uh, those branches to make the plant more fruitful. But I am not the pruner. And you should thank God for that. He's the one that knows which branches to cut. And that, that sharp edge in his hands is best. I think it's time for us to wind up. I was going to say, just before you close us in prayer, brothers and sisters, if you could sit in your seats for two more minutes after we close in prayer, I've got two logistical items to share with you uh, just about the camp and where we're going. Okay, let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do pray that you would help us in these things. We do greatly desire to grow in the grace of repentance. And Father, we know that you will be faithful to help us to this end. We know that part of that instruction means showing us our sin. And Father, we welcome it. And we know that you measure that sight perfectly so. You do not overwhelm us. You do not show us all of our sin all at once. And we thank you that you understand how we are formed, that we are but dust, and we are so weak. But you are so patient, and you are gracious and kind. But continue this ministry in us by your spirit and your truth. How we look forward tonight, Father, as we cast our eyes again upon Christ and learn together again what it means to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, as we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.